Isn't it marvelous how the Psalms give us words that we can't put together ourselves to express to God? Let's go to him in prayer as we turn our hearts to his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word sung and the word said and the word preached. We pray that it will be a blessing to our hearts. May your spirit convict us and turn us to your son in faith and thanksgiving, for we pray in his name. Amen. Well, it's interesting at this particular time, last couple of years, how people uh, face the whole subject of death. Um, thinking uh, yesterday's uh, of the service for our brother Bob Gordon and uh, remember him putting the mic on uh, Sunday morning and uh, wasn't there to do it this morning and so encouraged by how he faced suffering and, and trials and Kathy, how the Lord is upholding her. But there's a lot of fretting, a lot of fretting and, and terror in some hearts right now about facing death. And we all face death differently, even as believers. We have different emotions, but we don't have a different confidence. We don't have a different anchor. We, we all share that anchor who is Christ, and we'll be focusing on Christ as our anchor in weakness. So we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 35 to 58. And while you're turning there, I, uh, you know, the first half of this chapter has been one of my sort of life chapters. Talking about the resurrection, the need for the resurrection. Uh, if Christ isn't raised, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. Paul bets all the chips of Christianity, whether it's true or false, on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It's unlike any religion, it's not about great ideas, it's not about great true, eternal truths, it's about something historical that God has done to fulfill what we read in Isaiah. It's happened. There's nothing we can, you can't unhappen it. It's right there in front of us. And so I, I've loved the first half, but I never really, I kind of read over the second half. For years I read over the second half not very carefully, and so it, it really struck me, especially during these difficult times, that the second half is, is just as important as the first half, not only the hope of the resurrection, but why we have to die in the first place. Have you ever wondered that? Well, it was believers. Why couldn't we just, you know, be instantly translate? Why do we have to go through this process of death? Paul faced challengers questioning this, beginning at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. He's not talking to you. I'll tell you who he's talking to. Why you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he's chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. 
For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass... The saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thus far the reading of God's word. As I say, there are various approaches that people take uh, to death. One is simply to deny it. Uh, one movie star uh, was interviewed just before she died, uh, said, I just don't think about it. Just asked how she was facing this terminal illness. And I just... I don't think about death. That's one way to do it. Just deny it. Push it off, you know, into to beautiful, beautiful cemeteries named things like Forest Lawn. Right? Uh, behind walls that we cannot see. Unlike the old days when it was in the churchyard, when you came to church, you walked through a, a path with gravestones on each side, reminding you, why you got up that morning. And that is really why we come to church. We come to church because we're dying. We don't just come for moral uplift. We don't come to you know, become a, a, a better me. 
a, a happier me, a more successful me. We come really because of the urgent, pressing matter before us, and that is that we are all going to die. We can deny it. We can downplay it, you know, with euphemisms like passing away. Like it's, it's, it, it's sort of a gas or an air that just sort of passes away. Uh, or we, we can deflect it. Other people die. Uh, that's, a, that's a curse, especially of young people, right? We're gonna, I don't, shouldn't say we. Young people, when I was young, well, when I was young, used to think that I wouldn't die. Other people die. Not, not I, but young people do die. You know, we all know people dear to us who have died in their youth, even in infancy, even in the womb. Not long ago, uh, Pew Research interviewed people to find out what their views of, of death were, and they found that of all U.S. adults, 33% believe in reincarnation rather than resurrection. 33%. Of all Christians surveyed, Christians in general, 30%. So almost as much uh, as the general population. Among mainline Protestants, 33%. Roman Catholics, 36%. So more Roman Catholics uh, in America said that they believe in reincarnation than the general public. Those who said that they were nothing in particular ranked the highest. 55% of nothing in particular. I guess reincarnation is the position. I don't know, but that sounds like a good one to me. Evangelicals, those who self-identified as evangelicals, 20% said that they believe in reincarnation rather than resurrection. There's a lot of confusion today about this, but there was a lot of confusion in Paul's day as well, and it was really the same confusion. You see, I mean, this whole notion of reincarnation comes to us in Western culture mostly through the great philosopher Plato. And Plato was very influential in another philosopher's life, uh, many centuries later, Philo of Alexandria. He was Jewish, but he interpreted the Hebrew scriptures in a platonic way. And so it was this whole idea of the body as the prison house of the soul. I have deep within me, buried deep within me, a divine part of me. And it's encased in this sort of animal nature. Right? So that's the... That's the, the picture that we get. And so Philo of Alexandria goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and here's what he says. They represent two different creations. Genesis 1 is a spiritual creation. What God does first is he creates a spiritual human being, a spiritual Adam, purely ideal, a thought, a paradigm, not the flesh and blood Adam that he creates in chapter 2. It's two different 
creations. First, the spiritual Adam, and then the physical Adam. And a lot of it wasn't really about resurrection, even though he was Jewish. You know, back in Palestine, they were still looking forward to the resurrection of the dead someday, but not Philo. He was looking forward to, to uh, his soul springing from his body, this mortal coil, and springing upward, flying upward, and hopefully not having to come back in a worse body until he got it right. That's the sort of thing that the people Paul is writing to have brought into Corinth, these super apostles who thought they knew more than the apostles. Hey, I get revelations every Wednesday and Friday. Uh, I don't have to just stick with what the apostles are saying. And, And so they were saying the real you is a part of God, is a spark of divinity. And then there were also critics out in the culture who were saying things like, yeah, how does a resurrection body how does that happen? And you can find all sorts of uh, sources here. Celsus, one, you know, one of the philosophers said, well, I get, what if he gets eaten by a shark? How does that body come back? And just a whole litany of, yeah, well, what about, what about, what about, you know, what if a person's burned in a fire? What if a person is, has his arms cut off? How will he get, and by the way, says Celsus, who wants a body forever anyway? That's the dumbest gospel I've ever heard. That's good news. What I'm trying to get away from, I can't wait to fly away from. I'm going to be chained to forever. It's this sort of thing that has entered into Corinth. And that's why Paul says, you idiot. (laughs) To people who are bringing those sorts of objections. This body must die. That's the first point. This body must die. Second, this body must be changed. And third, this body must be raised. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed... Its own body. God created us out of seeds called his word. His word is like seeds. Let there be. And there was. There's there's this seed and there's that seed. There's a particular seed. Even if the body falls apart, there's still the seed. doesn't look like the body in that condition, but it is that body, like an acorn is the seed of an oak tree. A good indicator of how far we'll go to suppress the truth and unrighteousness is our refusal to face the reality of death. We don't need the Bible to tell us that we all die. It's about the most obvious fact there is in the world. Only the Bible tells us why. It tells us why they're at the end of this chapter, right? Because the The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So, in Adam, we are judged as guilty, not only for original sin, but also for our own 
sins. And so death has come upon all people because all people are born into this world as children of Adam under his fateful headship. We, we know why we die. The law has to, the law has to render a verdict that is righteous and just. And the only righteous and just verdict the law can render to children of Adam is guilty. And the sentence is death. Now, of course, believers know that the sting of death, as Paul says, has been taken out. Believers no longer die simply you know, as part of the mass of Adamic humanity. That's what I, I, I was sort of, before this really hit me, this second part of the chapter, I was thinking, well, you know, Christians have to, somebody asked me, why do Christians have to die? Uh, I, I, I say, well, everybody has to die. You know, that's just, that's the, that's the price for being children of Adam. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that everybody has to die as children of Adam, but Christians die for a different reason. The first reason is law. You know, as a, as a penalty, as a sentence. But actually, the reason Paul gives for why we have to die is part of the gospel. It's part of the good news. And so Paul here is not really talking about people being comforted by knowing that they will go to an intermediate state. They will, he says that in other places, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment we die, our soul is in, is in, in heaven with the Lord. But still crying out, like the souls in the book of Revelation how long, O oh Lord? <laughs> How long until justice is finally served? How long until the body is raised? The soul feels naked, unclothed, and longs for that further clothing. What Paul really focuses on here is that we must die so that we don't take any of it with us into glory. We must die, not be improved, not be extended, not be enhanced, not be modified, no cosmetic touches here and there. It is for our good and for the good of the world that we die. There are no powers within us, within the medical or pharmaceutical community, in the political world, whatever your party is. There is no power of regeneration in us or in the world. That's what we need, regeneration beginning within and then coming one day to the whole person. What would happen if we just could turn the clock back to Eden? Wouldn't that be lovely? No, we're expecting something greater than Eden that no eye has seen, including Adam and Eve. 
and no ear has heard. Unspeakable blessing, far greater than anything that Adam, because they failed in their trial, right? They never, they, they never won the right to eat from the tree of life, but we have. Jesus is the tree of life. We are branches of his vine. See, Adam, Paul says, was alive, a living person. And what do you get from, from Adam? Normal, mortal life under a curse. That's, that's what we get from Adam. But when we are re-headshipped by Christ, we're no longer just alive. We are immortal. I, I love the Immortal series. I love, you know, anything Marvel. Was it Marvel? Or, okay, I always get, get them confused. But we are the immortals. All of you sitting here right now, trusting in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, you are already destined by God to become immortal. He's going to raise your body in a completely new condition. Do you notice how many times he says there, this body must put on, this incorruption must put on incorruptibility. This body that's falling apart must be raised in glory. It was sown in weakness, but it was, the, the subject is the same body. That subject of the death and decay, the sorrow, that same subject is the subject of glory and joy and happiness forever. It's not that we get a different body. It's that we get the same body in a different condition. That's what Paul means by the natural and the spiritual. Let's not turn this into Plato or Philo. The natural is our flesh and blood, and the, the spiritual is sort of our inner divine self. That's not how Paul is dealing with it here. The natural is what is under Adam's headship. The spiritual is under Christ's headship. The natural, the body in its natural state is mortal and in fact dying. The same body in the spiritual state is alive because Christ is not only a living being, but life-giving source. Christ had to die, not because of his sin, but because of ours. And Paul tell, uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, so the New Testament contrasts, contrasts two ages, not two worlds. It's not this world of physical stuff and that world of spirit stuff. It's this age under Adam's curse and the age to come under righteousness and life because of what Christ has won, sitting around eating 
from the tree of life forever. Now, going back to Philo, why did I, why did I bring up Philo earlier? Well, because Philo said, he interpreted Genesis 1, remember, as spiritual, the, the spiritual Adam was created first, and then the physical Adam was created second. Now, I don't, I, I can't be sure about this, and I have to be careful, you know, we all have to be careful uh, as preachers about speculation, but I think it's a, a pretty decent speculation that a philosopher living in Alexandria who was Jewish and a contemporary of the Apostle Paul knew his teaching, knew his doctrine, and that kind of platonic Judaism had corrupted the church in Corinth. Why? Because Paul says, don't you know? It's the natural that comes first and then the spiritual. The natural Adam and then the spiritual Adam. Not the other way around. He turns... He turns Philo's interpretation on its head. It's the other way around. First, an Adam who, and it's not just about physical, it's about, it's about being under judgment. That first Adam came before the last Adam, which means the first Adam does not rule over us, does not determine our destiny. Praise the Lord for that. It also means that because the spiritual Adam was raised bodily, so we will be raised bodily. He is the first fruits. Paul says earlier in this chapter, we are the harvest. You always know what the harvest is going to look like by looking at uh, the first fruits. In a lot of cultures, you have the new wine festival. Uh, You get a taste of that vintage. How is this year going to turn out? Well, here's the new wine. This is the first. This is the down payment. This is the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits. There are not two resurrections. Jesus' resurrection 2,000 years ago and ours. It's one resurrection. It's just that his resurrection happened 2,000 years so far. Who knows how much longer? From ours. But it's the same resurrection. Why the detour? Why the intermission? It's a pretty good word for it. Intermission. So that the peoples who have the death shroud covering them can have the good news preached to them and embrace that good news and through faith alone claim the promise that their bodies too will be raised on the last day. Paul draws back the curtain just enough to anticipate what lies ahead for us. Different seeds, different shoots. They look different at different times. A little little seed of, of, of corn doesn't look like a corn stalk. And, but it is. And so our condition will be something we can't even fathom, but it will be that body that was placed in the ground. That body will sprout. But first it has to die. And the reason it has to die is because 
You don't want a diseased seed sprouting. You don't want anything in that harvest that brings cancer or genetic uh, 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 disorders or mental health illnesses or sadness or sorrow and above all sin, doubts, unbelief, disobedience, reckless disobedience to God. We don't want any of that coming with us. We don't want any of that to get up and go on Easter morning. It has to die. It's good that it has to die. Because if it doesn't die, then it can't be raised immortal. Now, a lot of people think, wow, you guys just, you know, you guys got to give up. What about, you know, I mean, this world and our, our health and so we're, you guys can keep talking about death and, 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 you know, resign yourself. No, we don't resign. We go to doctors. Uh, we care about the world. This is not an environment, by the way. This is a creation. It's not our world, whether we think we need to save it or can pollute it. It's God's world. Don't mess with God's world. But we can't save it any more than we can save our own bodies. Everything is going to have to die. And instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, be raised. Isn't that amazing? We, he let it, you in on a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed. Regardless of whether you are in glory, your soul is with the Lord, or whether you're down here still you know, struggling in your body. Either way, Paul says, we will all be changed. We, we will put on Christ. You don't have this suit in your wardrobe. You have to put it on. You have to get it from someone else. You have to put on Christ. Put on him as your head. Be Part of the harvest of which he is the first fruits. All of these images that Paul gives to make the point that we need to be branches grafted on to the vine of Jesus Christ. No, God has never given up on his creation, and he never will. And the proof of that is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. God so loved the world, all of it, that he sent his only begotten son. Precisely because we can't save it. The Christian hope has nothing to do with visions of late great planet Earth. Uh, but with the expectation we find in the book of Revelation. City of God descending from heaven and finally no division even between heaven and earth. God's dwelling is among us. Okay, so this body must die. This body must be changed. And then thirdly, this, this body must rise. And so this is the, this is the good news. At, at the, well, no, actually, the other stuff was good news, too. That's what I meant by it being gospel. It's good news. Yes, in a sense, it's bad news because it was Jesus lamenting at Lazarus' tomb even two minutes before he knows he's going to raise him from the dead. 
the horror of death, staring it in the face. It is the last enemy. But God knows how to turn our enemies into friends, into allies, unwitting allies of his plan. And he's done that with the last enemy, death, using it as a tool to put us, whether in an urn or in the ground, make sure it's dead. I don't make anything alive. I don't bring anything into my kingdom. Everlasting kingdom of peace where nothing corrupts. I don't bring anything or anyone in without changing who they are. So the body must rise. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he explains everywhere how that was accomplished, by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us that we receive through faith alone so that we are clothed with him and will be clothed with his immortal condition soon. Every justified person must be glorified. Everyone who's regenerated within must be regenerated without. We must die, we must be changed, and we must be raised. There's no possibility that, that... For a Christian, you know, we might die, but we're not sure about the resurrection, what's going to happen to us. No, we know we're going to be raised. We are the immortals. We are destined for immortal glory. And that's why there's something, you know, sin is always something good twisted into something bad. We have a thirst, a hunger for glory. Then we turn it into pride and ego and one-upmanship and all the stuff that we do. But God put it in our hearts to have a hunger, a thirst for glory, the glory of God. And the glory of our own bodies that we will have as moons, as it were, reflecting his glory. Paul's argument is tight and simple. Jesus has been raised the verb he uses there is in the perfect tense, which means that it is a uh, past action with continuing effects. And he uses it seven times in reference to Christ. So there are five conclusions from the de- denial of Christ's resurrection. Christ is not raised, and the preaching of the gospel is useless. Your faith is useless. Paul is bearing false witness. And worst of all, he says, you are still in your sins. And believers who have already died, he says, are lost. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If you just get a big bang out of, you know, following Jesus because he makes your life better, gives you whiter teeth, gives you, you know, all this stuff, then we're, of all people, 
the most to be pitied. Poor Christians, stupid Christians, duped Christians. There isn't a consolation prize for those who place their hope in a lie. But if Jesus is risen, and he is, then the age to come has dawned. That age that our Jewish friends are still looking for today. Do you know Muslims are also looking for the Messiah to come? Jesus, Esau. But he has come. 2,000 years ago, he, he has come. Everyone needs to hear this good news and embrace it so that they can get up on Resurrection Day with us and sit at that feast. Then comes the end, he says. The end. What is this? The end of the world? The end of time? I mean, everybody talks like that these days. No. I mean, one of the hymns has it, old, old gospel hymns, when time will be no more. Hmm? Since when did we become God? No, we'll still be temporal creatures. It just will go on for a long time. Forever and ever. Judgment will go on forever and glory will go on forever. It's not the end of the world. He says, no, no. Then the end comes when he delivers the whole kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, this is why he can conclude in the last verse, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We're not giving up on our own health we're not giving up on the health of other people. We're not giving up on this world being saved. On the contrary, with this conviction, with this hope, we live every day in anticipation of the resurrection, not only of us, but of the whole world that Paul talks about in Romans 8. The whole world is waiting. All of the creatures are waiting for release from bondage when the children of God are revealed. Even when you go about your daily callings, working in your garden or in your cubicle, volunteering at a shelter, falling in love, raising children, changing diapers. We are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because of the vista that he's placed before us. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for sending Jesus. We have no hope without him. We can speculate about what happens after we die. We can, but we have certainty because it happened. It just happened. You brought to pass what you'd promised century after century, recorded in the Old Testament by your prophets. You fulfilled that promise. And as Jesus got up from the dead, changed 
immortal even in his, his human nature, as he is, of course, in his divine nature, so too our humanity will be exactly like his. We cannot conceive of this. But we know it is true because the first fruits, Jesus, has already been raised. It looks like a very good harvest. Receive our thanks. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your to his word and sacrament.